At this point, we would normally move directly into the sermon, but I have something else in mind for us today, that is to sing one more hymn um, and to split it and to sing two verses of it before the sermon and the other two verses after the sermon. So bear with me for just a moment. One of the things that has happened this year, and some of you may be aware of that, is that what occurs as an annual meeting, our annual conference, uh, which is usually the first week of June, it was postponed uh, because of the pandemic. In fact, um, uh, as our bishop uh, tried his best to think through what was the right thing to do and consulted, no doubt, with other bishops and our district superintendents, the final decision was made to move that meeting um, into August and to have it at a different location than we previously had planned to have it. And so we were all set to go to to Tifton to the annual conference meeting. Um, We have learned um, in recent weeks that not only are we going to not have uh, the meeting at that location in Tifton, we are going to be sharing in an online annual conference, which is the first time ever that has been done. And so we are are wondering what that will look like and what that will mean. But I can tell you that one of the things that will occur uh, during the midst of online annual conference will be a memorial service in which we remember uh, those pastors and spouses who have died since we last were together as an annual conference. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because there is a fascinating little paragraph in our hymnal. This looks like a Bible, but it is actually my hymnal. Um, There is a fascinating passage to explain the particular significance of a hymn in our hymnal. And the hymn that I'm speaking of is the one that we are going to sing in just a few moments. Uh, I said that we were going to sing two verses before the sermon and two verses at the end of the sermon. But I'm here to tell you that we're going to sing, and I bet you have never heard this before in your life. We're going to sing the first, the second, the ninth and the tenth verses. (laughs) This, if you look on page 386, and you can't do that because you have no hymnals before you, but in the hymn as it is before me here, there are four verses that are listed along with the musical notes. But if you turn the page, you get to see that this hymn actually has 14 verses. 14 verses. And it, of course, was written by Charles Wesley, who entitled it, I think it was primarily known as Wrestling Jacob, but he called it Come, O Thou Traveler Unknown. And this hymn made its debut in uh, 1742. Now, that date is a pretty significant date because of some comment that was added to it that I will refer to in just a moment. They were having in 17, 
88, in 1788, a Methodist conference at which John Wesley, who was himself nearing the end of his life, he was 85 years old at this point, and he lived three more years, but John Wesley, who was at the Methodist conference, at the memorial service at the Methodist conference, gave a tribute to his brother Charles, who, who was born four and a half years younger uh, in years than him. No, he was not, that was not the right way to put that. He was born four and a half years after he was born, but died three years before he died. And he gave a tribute to his brother Charles at a, as sort of a, a, an obituary tribute at that conference to this one who was known for writing. Some, some say Charles wrote over the course of his life as many as four to 5,000 hymns. Others say that there is a record that he wrote at least 6,000 hymns. I, I read just in the past few days that there are some that claim that he wrote over 8,000 hymns. He was the most prolific hymn writer in all of the world. It says here in this note, John Wesley ended his obituary tribute to his brother Charles at the Methodist Conference in 1788, saying this, his least praise was his talent for poetry. Now that seems like a dig at his brother. His least praise was his talent for poetry. Although... Dr. Isaac Watts, does that name ring a bell with anybody here? Although Dr. Isaac Watts did not scruple to say that that single poem, Wrestling Jacob, was worth all the verses that he himself, Dr. Isaac Watts, had written. Now, that is incredible because, now th think about this for just a moment. Isaac Watts was the genius of poetry that wrote alas and did my savior bleed you know that he is the one that wrote when i survey the wondrous cross he is the one who wrote come we that love the lord and let our joys be known he is the one that wrote joy to the world the Lord is come he is the one who wrote oh God our help in ages past that Isaac Watts said that this hymn was better than anything he had ever written six years later Isaac Watts died. In 1742, Isaac Watts was introduced to this hymn. Six years later, he died. But he said before he died that this was greater than anything that he had written. Now think about this. If Isaac Watts thought that this was greater than anything that he had written, he must have thought that this was greater than anything that Charles Wesley had written. You get this? 
And Charles Wesley being the one who wrote, Hark the herald angels sing. Charles Wesley who wrote, and Tina played this. This is my favorite, my favorite of all hymns that Charles Wesley wrote. She played it for our prelude, if you picked up on that. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Charles Wesley, who wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Charles Wesley, who wrote, Love divine, all love's excelling. Charles Wesley, who wrote, Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Isaac Watts was saying that this hymn was better than any of those. Incredible. So, I say this to you <laughs> in order that you would pay attention to what we are about to share together, the first and the second and the ninth and tenth verses. It's important stuff. Important stuff. Let your heart be open to the scripture about which this was written. The scripture that we have just heard read. <laughs>
Genesis is a gold mine of stories of which we have chosen nine upon which to focus in this summer sermon series that we have entitled Beginnings. Today we leap from chapter 22 to 32. How can that be done? From the iconic journey up the hill called Mount Moriah into the saga of Jacob and Esau. While the chronology is a bit bit hazy, the narrative shares that Isaac married Rebekah after Isaac's mother's death. You remember Sarah, don't you? Rebekah conceived twins. Some of you know that Sue and I would pay particular, particular attention to those words. For our Sarah and Rachel were born to us, twins in our lives in 1988. Oh, we have master's degrees in twinology right now. The fascinating dynamics. Early on, Sue was seated with the two of them on the end of a bed as I remember it. They were barely toddlers, just learning to walk, just learning to talk. And Sue engaged them with the question, do you remember where you came from? Do you remember that I held you in my tummy? And Sarah immediately responded, she kicked me talking about her sister Rachel it seemed pretty authentic in chapter 25 the Bible shares that Rebecca's twins struggled struggled within her sometimes baby names just happen my mother had a friend whose name was welcome one day my mother was just too curious she said how did you get that name she said oh she said I was the 12th child in our family and on the day of my birth my daddy walked into the room and looked at me and said well she's not needed but she's welcome and it stuck Do you remember that Kevin Costner movie in which not only he acted but he directed and he produced a fascinating film, Dances with Wolves, that capitalized on the Native American penchant for names such as Bright Star or Running Deer our brave hunter. Rebecca knew exactly what to call her twins. Esau, hairy and rough. Jacob, grabs at the heel, grabs at the heel. 
names describe situations. But they also begin to define us. For Esau, that rugged individual who was so named by his mother, became this rugged hunter of a character. And Jacob, whom she so insightfully named, began to become this ingenious little trickster of a guy. Two events particularly evidence this. Number one, you remember well when Jacob at home with his mother, always with his mother there, sees his brother come home famished and makes a deal, makes a deal with him. I'll give you some of this stew, but you give me your birthright. Oh, he was only born moments before Jacob was born. But Jacob and Esau knew that he would receive the lion's share of whatever was coming through the estate. Event number two was really orchestrated by Rebecca, I think, as much as Jacob. When at the end of Isaac's engagement with the world, and even though Isaac lived on for years and years, and it was Rebecca that died, as Rebecca coached Jacob, he went in and tricked his father into that final blessing. The laying on of hands. The passing on of all that is good that can be passed on to the next generation. The imparting of God's holy grace. Not on to the elder son, but on to the conniving younger son. Of course, you know that Esau's anger flared at that point. His hate simmered at that point as he plotted to kill his brother. Rebekah advised Jacob to take flight to his uncle who lived in Haran. You remember the name of that city? Twenty years he lived with his uncle in Haran and never ever felt a part of that family. As he describes it, he was an alien for those 20 years. 
Finally, Jacob could take it no more. For his heart longed for home. Have you ever been away so long that your heart ached to be at home? To be in a place where you felt secure and loved and just relaxed. Jacob, true to his name and better at the game over the years than his uncle, prospered at Laban's expense and then made his quick escape but was plagued with whether he was jumping from the frying pan right into the fire. Because you know, any returning home for Jacob would mean in some way engaging with Esau once again. What would things be like with Esau? Uncertainty seized Jacob as he wrestled with his fears at what his brother might seek to do to him. And not only him, you remember this in biblical fashion, not only to him, but to all of his wives, to all of his children, to all of his livestock. We've read it before. And so he sends messengers to Esau to test the waters. He sent messengers to Esau who went sharing with Esau that Jacob had gifts that he wished to send as this olive branch to make peace with his brother Esau. Those messengers came back to Jacob reporting as they raced Jacob's way that his brother Esau had amassed 400 men with him who all saddled up to come and meet Jacob. Can you imagine when Jacob received that news? What did he mean by meet Jacob? Couldn't you ascertain from him his attitude when you met with him? My dear messengers, tell me, what was he meaning when he said that he was going to meet his brother Jacob? Oh, boy, don't we dream when stuff is going on. Our subconscious mind seeking sense out of our dilemma. This week, some of you know that I had the sad job of preaching Barney Allen's funeral service. Do you remember Barney? Of course you do. He and Pansy, 
who died some six years ago now, used to sit right there <laughs> every Sunday. Every Sunday, they used to sit right there in the process of visiting with the family I realized that there were two stories that were treasured by them one had to do with the fact that in his older years when he was retired from his work and Pansy was still around he was actually still working out at the recycling center he would go out there but when he would come home he would sit down in his easy chair and prop his feet up and a friend of the family came in the back door just for a short visit and Pansy met her as she was coming in with a box that she put into her hand now the friend of the family looked at her and said what do you want me to do and Pansy said I want you to throw this box away but not here now it was a box that had at one time contained one of those frozen latticework apple pies and Pansy said to the friend of the family take this and put it in your car he thinks I make these from scratch <laughs> that is one of the best stories I've heard lately the second story that the family shared with me is that that story from the days in which Barney drove a bed truck, bread truck. Now, some of you may remember him working at driving a bread truck. He actually worked for the Durst Company who sold sunbeam bread all throughout the, this area for years and years and years. And he drove that rattling truck that went from grocery store to grocery store. And uh, the family said that it was a, it was a constant strain on him uh, because the shelves in the grocery stores were a limited real estate for other bread representatives who also wanted to place their bread there and sell it and so there was this tension and usually the reps did not show up at the same time but they would push each other's bread a little further down the shelf in order to claim that valuable real estate but the family says that on one occasion that that Barney was in the Piggly Wiggly which is now the Bilo some of you will remember that that he was in there delivering his supply of bread to the Piggly Wiggly when the Clawson bread rep showed up to also put his bread on the shelf and things got hot and then things boiled over with their conversation turning into a scuffle right there on aisle nine. Oh, I wish I could have been present to see it. 
what a classic scene of two men going at it and struggling with their situation and wanting things to be right in the world and in their life. I don't know how it all came out. The family didn't share who won. But I've had that on my mind this week as I have reflected. When Jacob turned in for the night, after having heard from his messengers, a man, it says in the scripture, wrestled with him until dawn. Who? Who? It's a cryptic line. Who was it that was wrestling with him? Now, if you are a dreamer, and all of you are, you may say that you don't dream. But I studied dreams when I was in college, and I know that that is not true. Everybody dreams. Our professor used to tell us, Keep a pad and paper beside your bed when you wake up just enough to realize in the night that you may have been having a dream. Sit up and write it down. Everybody dreams. I can remember also that my professor told us there are multiple layers to dreams. When Jacob turned in for the night, a man wrestled with him until dawn. Who? Was it his brother Esau? I mean, we can imagine that, right? Was it himself? I can imagine that as he was struggling with what he was going to do. And who he was. Was it an angel? Because you and I know that. No one sees God and lives. But here in this passage it almost appears. That it is God himself. That has shown up. I want to suggest to you that it is all of the above. But the last one on the list, God, the last one tore a ligament in a very real way in Jacob's hip, pinning him to the ground. And even though Jacob had lost the fight, Jacob held on to him like it was something that he couldn't let loose of. Even when the one who looked him in the eyes and said, let me go. Jacob stared back and said, not until you bless me. And then as if this divine one would not know. He looked at Jacob and said, What is your name? 
as if he didn't know. And when Jacob uttered the word, immediately, God, let's just go ahead and say it, God spoke to him and said, no longer shall you be called Jacob, trickster in residence, but you shall be called Israel. Israel, one who struggles with God and with humankind. So here's a thought. What is your identity? What is your identity? What is your identity? We carry a host of self-images with us wherever we go. Oh, some of these sound kind of severe. But I bet you there's somebody here today that thinks of themselves as a scoundrel or a cheat. Somebody whose name is unworthy. Someone whose name is irresponsible. Someone whose name is unfaithful. Someone whose name is discouraged. Someone whose name is ugly. Someone whose name is coward. Someone whose name is bully. Bully. Someone whose name is unloved. Unloved. Someone whose name is unloving. When Jacob finally moved out into that morning and walked toward Esau, he not only had a new name, he had a new identity. And not only was God behind him, but God was ahead of him, ahead of him. For truly it was a meeting, just a meeting. It was not a slaughter. And who could have made that possible? But God himself. Let me tell you something. Methodist pastors don't christen babies. If you haven't ever heard that before, hear it now. Because they taught me well when I was in seminary. Methodist pastors don't christen babies. We baptize babies. In fact, I'm on the conference board of ordained ministry. And one of the things that we make sure of all the candidates that come through the line of succession that will call themselves Methodist ministers is that they know how to answer the question, do we christen babies? We don't christen babies. We baptize babies. But let me admit something to you. 
I've come to think that christening, or let me repronounce that. I've come to think that Christening, which is what the word means, Christening, is exactly what we need. Exactly what we need. Because we are called up. We are called to give up those lesser identities that we all carry within us and take up the precious name of Jesus who is our Christ, who is our Lord, the one by whom we call ourselves who we are, Christians. Christians. I have come to desire to be christened. For he is the one alone who is truly our salvation. And I think Jacob tasted of this. On that night that he wrestled with, shall we say it? <laughs> Come on, God. You know who he was wrestling with. He came to a new understanding of himself. And so, I ask you this question. With whom are you wrestling today? Someone in the community? Someone in your family? Yourself? God?
receive now this benediction. Holy one, pin our shoulders to the ground. Bless us. Rename us. Create within us new identity. We call, we call, we call on you. Amen.